So when you stay in a penthouse like this, all the way at the top, you got to get Tom the right kind of drink. Savile, can you please serve Mr. Ellsworth the proper drink? By the way, this was not set up. Ah, please stop mooning us and take your... Uh, no. I'm what is it? We can't see it. No, I won't even touch the bottle. What? I can't see it. What is it? Sam doesn't know the dimensions. I'm just have a butt light. No, off, I will not touch the bottle. Are you joking? I'm not touch Listen. the bottle. Tom. I will not touch the bottle. Touch it. No. <laughs> <laughs> just touch it, Tom. <laughs> are you being touch serious? It. I'm just, being deadly serious. What do you have a pro? Just a beer. No, it's not a beer. You know how you make Bud Light? You know how you make Bud Light? Tell us. You let a horse drink Coors and put a bucket underneath, and the horse <laughs> filters the Coors, and that's how you make Bud Light. Wow, you see, that's why you're the Tom is offended. You know, so, Tom, what, what, what is going on with Bud Light? What do you want to tell us about Bud Light here? Well, I, I'm disappointed um, a little bit in corporate leadership. You know, I do case studies, look at corporate leaders and stuff, and how you lead through turbulent times. And right now, you've got the CEO of Budweiser saying, it was one can. It was one picture. We were we didn't have a contract. Well, wait a minute. You didn't have a contract? Did you have a, did you really it was a handshake you, agreement yeah exactly right and it's a and there was one person that was in the marketing group and we shot her and we shot her boss and we are getting back to where it was it was and so you see what the ceo is doing is trying to rinse responsibility off the organization and and not only have they thrown the marketing person and her boss under the bus they're backing up the bus going back and forth to make sure they're dead and that is what's happening it's really number one the best thing to do is to say, you know what? My team made a mistake, and the buck stops with me, and I'm the CEO here. And you know what? We're always trying to market, and we're trying to market to various groups. This was a freaking big bonehead error, and you know what? We're stepping back from it, and this is how it happened. Instead, wait, oh, it was only one can, and it was only one uh, yeah. one incident, mm -hmm. and, and and there was only one person, right. and she didn't have permission from her boss. Does that sound like a weak—you know leadership. You do the vault conference. You talk yeah. to leaders all the time, Pat. Does that sound like a weak leader running from blame or a strong leader coming to the microphone? You, you know you know what this—last night you and I had a very good conversation together for 45 minutes, okay? And— <clears throat> We're watching a Miami Heat game. He's giving me commentary. I needed help. So he's kind of telling me, watch this place, all this stuff. Yeah. But I told him something last night. I said, you know, in life, here's what mistake we can make and you shouldn't make. You have to take a stand and have a position. When you take a stand and take a position, what happens next is there is opposition. You take a position, there is opposition. Position, opposition. Great. That's natural. Hey, I think Michael Jordan's the greatest of all time. You're a moron. LeBron's the greatest of all time. That's opposition. I think the Yankees are the greatest organization of all time. Steinberg, are you kidding me? It's really the Dodgers. I think I'm a the Muslim this. Christian, did you know that? That's the opposition, right? Okay. Bud Light took a position. Their audience are male, white, military, wanting to drink. Last thing they want to think about is just politics. They just want to drink, have a good time. They love America. They want to go to a bar. It's not expensive beer. They want to get, have a good conversation. Most people, when you think about Bud Light, you think about a great conversation in the moment you shared with a friend, right? Then these guys try to increase their ESG score. And Bud Light, Anheuser-Busch, ends up having a perfect ESG score, okay? One of the best ESG scores in America, do you, know what Bud, do you know what they just did? The ESG score organization came out and said, I don't know if you saw this or not. They came out and they said, uh, LGBTQ uh, group slashes Anheuser-Busch's perfect rating. They had a perfect rating. 
after backlashing, backtracking on Dylan Mulvaney's Bud Light controversy. So what are they doing now? Now they're backing up and they're saying, yeah, I don't know if we you know, support what they're doing now. They went from a perfect score of 100. Only 20 companies, I believe, had the perfect score of 100. So here's what Bud Light did. You, you already had your loyal audience that's been loyal to you for decades, but you also wanted to win over the CEI corporate equity index score and increase that. You know what happened? You lost both. Not only did you lose your customers, but you lost the people that you were trying to please. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when you conform. People see through it and they say, it's bullshit. We don't like what you stand for. You don't have a backbone. Dude, I'm stepping away. So they lose 28%. You know who gained 28%? All the other guys. Mm-hmm. Coors and everybody else. Your customers went elsewhere. And for the, I, I, you know, America's pretty forgiving. So I think eventually they're going to get over it and kind of be like, yeah, whatever. But it's going to take a minute. And the only way they can do it is by firing the current CEO firing the current CMO, firing the VP of ops, showing the fact that you fired everybody in that department, making a public announcement that we don't care about our ESG score, our CEI score, our DEI score. If you don't do that, those people are not coming back. But if you do do that, and you replace them with a better CEO, better VP of marketing, better board, they're going to come out and say, here's what I'm, I love America. Here's what I believe in, da 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 da. And look, we just want to make good beer. Bud likes to make great beer for many, many years. That's what we want to get back to. If you show that you don't care about wanting to please these guys, I think customers will show back up. But that's going to take a year or two to do. A hundred percent. And Budweiser USA is owned by Anheuser Busch USA is owned by InBev, which is a giant beer conglomerate that also owns Stella Artois and many other and Corona and, and many other things. Uh, the, the list and goes you're on right. And, on and, on. and what InBev needs to do and says we didn't buy you to pee in the pool. We bought you to keep growing as one of the dynamic brands that is that lines up like Coca-Cola and others with the last hundred years of Americana. It's a very American, iconic brand. And InBev mm-hmm. needs to do exactly what Pat just said. Said, you, you and you, you're done. We bought you not to do this. And you guys have just puked on your own shoes. This is over. So, so here's the thing. So I want to give a little bit more context to this. This actually falls in line with something I'm launching in the next couple of weeks. So everybody, like, go to stopwoke.com. You, you'll see what's Stop going on. Woke. Stop woke. Stopwoke.com. Put it in the description <clears throat> in the comments. That's great Please. that you got that so, domain. So here's the thing. In a, couple of, in a couple of weeks, we're going to launch what I'm calling the Corporate Fairness Index, okay? So Stop Woke has partnered with the Rainey Institute for Public Policy in D.C. We've actually come up with methodology. We're going to announce the top five wokest companies in America. We're also creating a curriculum. Love that. We're also creating a curriculum, yeah, to go into these corporations and to say, okay, this is what you do to sort of get away from this. What people don't realize about this Bud Light thing and what people don't realize about the Dylan Mulvaney thing and all of this other stuff is that the human rights campaign, they have something called the Corporate Equality Index. This is a grift. They have shaken down these corporations for the past 20 years. The human rights campaign calls itself an LGBT advocacy organization. It is a far left um, Democrat super PAC at this point that gets $45 million in grants and contributions in 2020. I personally know for a fact that they have shaken down a major bank to the tune of nine figures when they threatened them with dropping their sort their score. So Bud Light had to do this in order to get one 100% rating on this corporate equality index, which is something that the HRC puts out. So the only way we can stop this, like we can talk about uh, corporations are too woke, all of that other stuff. What we need to do is, number one, 
go into these corporations, um, de-incentivize the importance of something like the Corporate Equality Index and give these corporations an off-ramp. Give them an off-ramp to say, you know, you can do your diversity and all that stuff, that's fine, but also you have to um, you have to sort of appeal to the other side of the aisle as well. So we do not stop the fight against corporate wokeness until we de-incentivize the importance of the Corporate Equality Index. That's why I'm launching the Corporate Fairness Index in a couple of weeks. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff about that. There's a lot of companies that are very interested in this. And I believe that as a consultancy, um, this is an emerging market. These companies and these corporations want an off-ramp. They want a way Let out. Let me tell you, I love it. And by the way, you know who funds it? The, the HRC. Democrats. Open Society Foundation. Uh, and you know who's Soros. Open Society? Soros. He gave him $100 million in 2012. Yeah. We're not even talking recently. $100 yeah. million in 2012. Uh, but go ahead. We're going to say something. And one of the things that um, is I'm going, I'm literally going to the swamp tomorrow. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm hitting up donors and I'm doing these presentations and all this stuff. So when I'm hitting up donors, um, especially conservative-leaning mega donors for um, organizations like Stop Woke that are doing this stuff, uh, that we're, we're building this, this corporate fairness index up and we're going to do this work, the first thing that they say is, oh, well, don't we already have this? Don't we already have that? Well, I give to this politician. I give that to politician. When you said that the human rights campaign is funded by George Soros and his open borders society or open whatever society – the left, these people fund all kinds of organizations to the tune of billions of dollars. And we don't have very many things like this on um, the right that are things that are, you know, advocating for our agenda. And the reason why is that we have a donor base, you know, as conservatives that are so consumed with get this politician in, get this, all this other stuff. The change that needs to happen in this country, and this is the last thing I'll say, I know I've been going on a bit of a tangent. The change that needs to happen in this country is a cultural change. It will start with the culture and the politicians will follow. It is not the other way around. And this is what people need to get. So I love is, it. This is what I'm going to tell these, Stop these donors. Stopwoke.com. Stopwoke.com. We got it all over the place. Rob, yes. respect to you yeah, on what you're doing. Appreciate that. Can we get a little sneak preview of the top five most oh, woke companies? Give us something to work oh, with here, guys. I do not want to spoil anything. I got a couple places that have the exclusive. Uh, one place that has the exclusive. I will say that these are companies. I know that the, the top five. I know two in the top five are, are household names. Got it. Household names. Uh, so, so I hate to disappoint you, but what we did is the last uh, three months we've been trying to increase our ESG score and our <laughs> CI score. And this is, that is what why we I'm did. Yes, no, no. This is what we did yesterday. If you want to, if you want to play this clip uh, to try to By increase way, our ESG door? score, who is it? Yeah, who knows? Hey guys, what's up, Pat? What's up, guys? What's up? Oh, oh my God! Go Vinny Mulvaney in the house up, with them legs. Yeah, what's up? Look at that. Look at you, Chicken legs, Vin. <laughs> oh my God! Look at Get it, boy. Look at Where are you at, Bud Light? I'm gonna go get a Bud Light right now. They're giving them away. Sponsorship. We'll see Holy, guys. that's a good look. Yeah, that's a good. You just increased our ESG score. You're amazing. I love you guys. Take it easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. He was walking around like that all day yesterday in the office. I'm like, he comes in. I'm in the conference. I'm like, what, bro, what are you doing? He's like, we're doing a skit. I'm like, okay, makes sense. All right, let's go to the next story here. Tom, Jamie Dimon warns souring commercial real estate loans could threaten some banks. And by the way, when he says that, uh, interpretation. Uh, we're about to buy some more banks. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
So J.P. Morgan Chase uh, raises concerns about commercial real estate loans, cautioning that certain locations, office properties, construction loans could pose problems for banks, diamond states. The offsite in this case will probably be real estate. It could be very isolated. It won't be every bank, despite historically low loan defaults. Diamond highlights the impact of rising interest rates and changes in the working environment on commercial buildings, especially in markets like San Francisco. He believes there will be a credit cycle stating, my view is it will be very normal with the exception of real estate. Diamond advises banks to prepare for higher interest rates, urging them to plan for rates going as high as 6 or 7%. That's not something people in the real estate business want to hear. Tom, what other insight do you have on this story here? Well, let's, let's take it from... Uh from the CEO office in the penthouse, and we'll take it all the way down to your house. First of all, let me translate for Jamie Dimon. I, I, I read it, and um, I, I was able to translate it. Uh, there are some failing banks that have some furniture that will look great in my office. And so it's basically what's about to happen. The um, It's basically, uh, for the last nine months, J.P. Morgan has been basically like Batman, that when Janet Yellen and the Fed are in trouble with banks and failing and everything, they turn up, the, they turn on the, the bat spotlight and Jamie Dimon comes to the rescue and helps them pick up the pieces of these banks by taking parts, assimilating them into J.P. Morgan, and then the rest of the things, the um, the investor, the, excuse me, depositors ended up being protected by the federal government because the deposit that was beyond FDIC limits government took care of it. But what Diamond is saying here is that the he's saying it without being inflammatory. The banking crisis is not over because the interest rate crisis isn't over. And we all know what's happening in commercial real estate. It's getting rough. And Rob, do you have, I sent you a follow-up email, which was the mortgage highest rate since early March. Take a look at this PPD. Um, for people, if you happen to be driving and you can't see what's on the screen right now, the it's a chart showing the interest rates, and we had a bump up at about 6 and 3 quarter percent in February. Now we're about to have another bump up after we came off the spike, which was October, November, we were above 7, about 7 and an eighth. And so the interest rates in, in homes are not going down, even though we talk about the Fed that maybe um, Jerome Powell has been up to see the cheerleader for the last time this year, and uh, interest rates are going to be flat. What's really happening right now is the interest rates and mortgages are actually ticking up a little bit, and the houses are still not moving. And we're here going to be a lot of headlines over the course of the summer about things going on in banking. So it's still going to be tough for people to sell houses. It's going to be tough for people to get mortgages in new cities if your job moves and you're laid off and you have to go somewhere. And so it's uh, it's going to be a long, hot summer, and you're going to see uh, – Jamie Dimon and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase get bigger because there are going to be some small banks that were highly exposed to commercial real estate get clobbered. Is there any names? Um, I'll have some names next week, but um, it's not any big names are out there. There's regionals. See, there's regionals mm -hmm. that may do really well, like an IndyMac that does really well in Indianapolis. And so they did a couple large buildings in Indianapolis, and now those buildings have low occupancy rate, a troubled mortgage. And that's what knocks over a bank that is serving the local commercial market because local commercial banks are tied to local commercial politicians, yeah. tied to local you know, downtowns that are getting built. Uh, mm -hmm. The national banks have less clout and interest on those than they have in broad-based consumer things if, like if credit you, cards. If you're a buyer right now, com commercial real estate, are you are you buying now? Are you waiting 6, 12, 18 months? What would you recommend on the commercial real estate side? Um, 
You know, the, the Oracle of Omaha says when it's raining outside, run outside with a wash tub. And I think by the end of the summer, it's going to be raining hard in commercial real estate. And if your business is in a position to move up or you're able to grow or take advantage of space, I think you're going to have opportunities to do it right around Labor Day. Interesting. PBD, what's the fallout from this? Because I, th- I believe, what was the bank that Chase acquired? Was it First Republic? I think there was, they had 80-something branches in, I don't know, eight to ten states. They acquired that. Silicon close, Valley closed Bank. Closed some of the branches, took some of the loan assets right. that were still good, began to service them. And then you got Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank were the other two banks. They were taken over by the FDIC, I want to say. So walk me through the, the mindset of Jamie Dimon. You're just kind of sitting there like, all right. Let's see which one of these bad boy banks, regional banks, we're gonna we're gonna acquire next. And then what are the ramifications of that when these mid-sized banks, regional banks, shudder, and then all of a sudden we're back with these four big mega banks? How does that affect the economy well, at that point? I can I can draw a picture for you really easy. It's really easy to see. Um, let's spin back 15 years and look at our cell phone choices. And I'm gonna give you some names that are gone. Singular, ATT when it was smaller, Nextel, Sprint. Um, GT MobileNet, uh, and then you also had the ones you still have now. You had Bell Atlantic Mobile before it became Verizon, hmm. um, and you take a look at that. Now look at the consolidation. Yeah. You have four choices now. You have independents um, that are you know the small ones, the phones for the elderly, phones for people in fixed income, and then you've got T-Mobile, which now owns Sprint, mm-hmm. and you've got Verizon, and you've got AT&T. What are, what are the other choices? you got Cricket. Cricket is one of the small ones to serve a certain populace. The same thing's happening in banking. What you saw happening in mobile phones is what is mm-hmm. happening in banking. What you saw happening in cable TV. Remember, you had all these different choices, and all of a sudden, well, you got uh, Dish, and you got uh, um, uh, DirecTV, DirecTV on satellite, and then you got whoever's got the cable in the street, probably Cox or Comcast, and suddenly you didn't have very many choices. OTT democratized that. As mm-hmm. long as you get internet to your house, you can choose anything. Mm-hmm. But um, the same thing is happening with banks. So how will that affect the average consumer? If they're like, all these banks are being consolidated, I'm left with only four choices. Mm-hmm. Well, on my podcast, I pointed out that I said, look, you know, if you have a local bank that really serves business as well, and you have a first name basis, and they give you, you know, all kinds of loans and support for equipment, make the relationship there, but also have an emergency account with money in it and make one major payment a month, maybe your building rent, and have that with Chase or with B of A. Good feedback. Every month. Every Monday morning at what time? 11.30? 11.30. Eastern Standard Time. BizDoc. Uh, next story here. Looming existential crisis for cable news. This is a Washington Post story. Cable news <coughs> declining influence and troubled uh, business model are evident as TV viewership drops and court cutting accelerates. The recent CNN town hall with Donald Trump drew uh, just 3.3 million views, highlighting the indus- industry's wanting power. According to research firms, cable subscription have declined from 70%. Just seven years ago, 2016, to under 40% today. That's massive in a short period of time. Despite the decline, cable news networks remain profitable due to license fees paid by cable operators. However, as cable subscribers continue to decrease, license fees may become unaffordable for operators posing a threat to the financial foundation of cable news while networks have ventured into digital platforms, streaming services, and apps, have yet to match the popularity and profitability of traditional cable. The future cable news is uncertain with the industry grappling with challenges in adapting to streaming 
and appealing to younger viewers. This is pretty wild that that's taking place. Rob, what are your thoughts on this? I have lots of thoughts on this. You know, I'm somebody that um, operates in both spaces, and Mm -hmm. not a lot of people do, right? Because some people that are are in the cable news world are just there, and then some people that are sort of in our world are just here. So I've been able to sort of negotiate both spaces. They really are two different things. Uh, The fundamental problem that I see with the cable news networks, and, and you can, they're interchangeable at this point. You can switch out any of them, is that number one, it is an older, older, older audience, right? And so they are not making the investments talent-wise, they're not making the investments infrastructure-wise, they're not making the investments content-wise in order to bring that age down. They are more focused on keeping the older audience that they have right now than they are in trying to build up the younger generation of eyeballs. And that doesn't mean that you take a 32-year-old and and put them on cable news. Like, that doesn't matter. A lot of the people, for me, a lot of people that follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Rob Smith Online, uh, but a lot of people that follow me would not see a lot of my cable news clips if I did not, you know, package them up and post them on my social media. This is a huge problem. Now, what I think is going to happen is that maybe in the next 12 to 15 years, when places like uh, Valuetainment are built up, when places like um, DW, like all of these content hubs, you know, these people are going to, you know, see their declining relevance and they're just going to start gobbling these companies up, right? Uh, But yes, they are becoming less and less relevant because the people that are the youngest people that come up to me on the streets or, or that are my mm-hmm. fan base or whatever, like they're finding me on, on Insta. They're finding me on, on TikTok. You know, they're finding me on YouTube. They These people don't know what cable news is. And I think that as media people, again, we live in this bubble where we give these networks kind of like a lot more relevance than I think that they have to people that do not live in this world because people that do not live in this world could care less. Uh, they're on their phones. You know, they're following their people on Twitter, Insta, Facebook, YouTube, whatever. Adam. Yeah, I mean, if you just look at these numbers, it's almost shocking. If a company, if you if you did any company, if you, Tesla, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, pick a company, Amazon, Apple, the list goes on and on. If you said that they've de- cable descript- subscriptions have declined from over seventy percent of households as of twenty sixteen to now under 40% today, okay? What is that? A 40% drop, give or take? That's massive. Yeah, okay. but over 40. Massive. Yeah. Okay, now let's go five years from now. If it's at 40% now, using that same math, now you're at 20%? Yeah. At what point are you just completely out of business and bankrupt? It, it's pretty shocking, and I love how they say here, the future of cable news is uncertain with the industry grappling with the challenges and adapting to streaming and appealing to younger viewers. Uncertain. It's only one thing. <laughs> Pretty certain that it's a completely in decline. Well, it's only one thing. Only one thing is making cable news people stick around. What, That's YouTube? No, it's oh, sports. Yeah. It's, it's sports. So mm-hmm. it, what Phoenix Suns did, if you can pull up Phoenix Suns, Phoenix Suns mm-hmm. are moving away from relying on media to control them and cable they're launching their games to be played on an OTT, their own OTT, the Suns. Do you realize what will happen if these guys succeed? Mm-hmm. If they go away, whichever, everything you need to know about the Suns, new media deal and the NBA's RSN problem. So if these guys get away and they say, hey, if you want to watch the Suns play, $9.99 a month. Okay. If all of a sudden a million people in Phoenix or nationwide that like the Phoenix Suns pay $9.99 a month or whatever the dollar amount is, mm-hmm. Now they're making $120 million a year off their OTT, mm-hmm. and they don't need to put that anywhere else. Mm-hmm. They own rights. If ESPN wants clips, they got to buy it. If mm-hmm. other people want the clips, they got. There's certain benefits that you get. So sports is holding people 
uh, uh, within the cable network. Once sports goes, and these YouTube NFL deals, these, you know, Spotify, if they do something, they're not right now. If Twitter picks up something with sports, if gradually this happens, unfortunately, cable news will be newspapers Mm -hmm. very quickly, and they'll have to transition. Now, don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean they're going to be done done. Mm -hmm. Some of these guys behind closed doors are working on, you know, creating their stuff, moving their stuff from a cable to OTT. You know, Fox is doing Fox Nation. CNN tried to do CNN+. Plus where Kerry Lake wanted to do the interview with CNN. Uh, I don't know if you remember that or not. There's some of these things that are out there, but uh, we'll see what's going to happen. Tom, any thoughts on this? Yeah, you can also see that, that although I think Pat and I both agree that the NBA is not a very good product right now. Um, uh, Go Nuggets. Yeah, yeah exactly. Relax, well, guys. But, We're rooting but for no, the I mean, around I mean the, product, the product itself. Yeah. Uh, the, you also see things happening. For instance, um, I believe it's the Portland Trailblazers. They're the first NBA team. that The classic thing was a notable sportscaster doing play-by-play and then maybe a retired player or someone who's incredibly respected in the game doing uh you know, side-by-side color commentary. Well, Portland has actually put a stats guy there. And what they're doing is they're putting small stats things out there that appeal to the younger audience that's more likely to play fantasy sports. And they are the first NBA team that part of their broadcast team, as they do OTT, is like a side-by-side stats guy. So not only do you see it going away from mainstream, that Bally Sports is just, you know, the mother of invention is crisis. And the Bally Sports crisis is giving opportunities for Phoenix Suns to do it their way and what the Portland Trailblazers are doing with their with their with their stats guy. And I think how it's being broadcast is changing as well as where it's being consumed. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm actually a little disappointed myself that when you said what they're what they're doing, you know, who, what's changing this and you said sports cuz I'm that guy. I don't have cable. I don't I haven't had cable in years. Yeah. I do I watch everything on YouTube, but I do want to watch Miami Heat go to the NBA finals when they beat the Celtics eventually. And I done exactly that. I pay for YouTube TV and or I, or I figure out ways to basically maneuver the system just to watch the heat game. But I refuse to pay nine 99 a month for basically stuff that I don't watch. Yep. Right. And I do believe that the NBA is a good product these days, despite everything that happened in the bubble. I, I disagree I think, with Tom. By the way, I think it's going to be a better product when LeBron retires. And oh. when, when LeBron, Carmelo, Chris Paul, when these guys retire, I think the new age players I like more than this woke age of players that kind of messed up the game a little bit. And, you know, a guy as big as him has become the greatest flopper of all time. I made a recommendation the other day for Masterclass to hire LeBron, <laughs> give him a few million dollars to teach a course on flopping. I actually think it would do very good with the new age people, but that's a completely different conversation. Next, Daily Wire, okay, <laughs> who is growing uh, month in, month out, will stream all shows on Twitter, is what they're saying. This is a Hill story. The Daily Wire, prominent right-wing media company, will stream all of its shows on Twitter starting May 30th, aiming to expand its audience, according to Daily Wire CEO, co-CEO, Jeremy Boring. The overwhelming amount of positive feedback from our advertisers and audience signals tremendous opportunity. The move comes as conservative media personalities increasingly turn to Twitter, seeing at is it, it is the platform that refuses to engage in content censorship based on politics. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson announced bringing his program to Twitter and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis plans to formally announce, obviously we know that, the Daily Wire a multimedia content featuring fire-breathing conservative commentary covers politics, pop culture, and entertainment. Matt Walsh apparently who on his YouTube channel was saying he was making around $100,000 a month, and he had something that he 
input about the trans or the drag shows he was going against. Mm -hmm. it. He got a strike, and he says, you know what, if this is what you guys are doing, we're moving away from it. So what are your thoughts about Daily Wire choosing to take all of their talents, big names, Shapiro, Peterson, Candace Owens, Matt Walsh, they got a lot of good guys there, to Twitter. Huge, massive. It, 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 look, it cannot be overstated the importance of this move right now. And DW was ahead of the curve with a lot of this stuff because they started doing, you know, their full video podcast. And you want to talk about Daily Wire, for me, as somebody that is sort of, you know, looking to venture into the video podcast space now, I look at a Candace Owens podcast as like, this is what a video podcast should look like. This is what it should be. This person is on point. She looks fantastic every day. It's culturally relevant. It is all of these different things. So when you take these things and put them on Twitter as the full video element, what this is saying is that Twitter and Elon Musk's moves, remember, the new CEO of Twitter, Linda Yaccarino, what did she do before that? She was head of ad sales at NBC Universal. Yep. They are turning Twitter into a hub for video content, and they have not even started to talk about how they're going to be monetizing that yet outside of subscriptions. And so this is what I say, and I was saying it to one of your guys before you came to do the podcast. On Twitter, it is not going to be enough to just say shit in order to get a following at this point nowadays. Like maybe you could have before, uh, maybe a little bit right now. Yeah, you can just hop on Twitter and start saying things. This is going to be become a platform for high quality video content for people that know how to articulate themselves on camera, for people that know how to put that video content out there. And we talk about the decline of cable news and we talk about the fact that Matt Walsh cannot say um, factual things about quote unquote transgender youth on YouTube without getting completely demonetized on YouTube. Twitter is the new platform. Platform. So they're ahead of the curve. They were ahead of the curve two years ago when they started creating and producing these these podcasts. I, I, I did Candace's podcast a couple of times um, back when they were doing sort of the, like the panel format, and then they kind of switched it to where it's just her. And I think that that format works a lot better. I think it's a lot stronger. Uh, but I think this is a, size, a seismic move. Tom, I think, and I just looked up something here. I want to grab a couple dates. I think the move of her going to Twitter is as big as when Sheryl Sandberg went to Facebook. Mm -hmm. Sheryl Sandberg is not credited with making um, Facebook um, ad business. She's credited with making Facebook profitable. It was unprofitable until she got there and she put the ad business and the associated monetization programs in place. And she did so without diving in and changing what was on Facebook. The product guys were some, excuse me, the product individuals were responsible for that, led by Zuck himself. And I think that that's what's going on here. I think that the, she's looked at it. This is how they're going to monetize it. And that, you know, Elon Musk knows what he wants to do with the product. He knows what he's adding to the product. And I think he's been pretty sensible about it. So I, I think this is as big as Sheryl Sandberg going to Facebook in 2008. She made the company profitable in short order. And then they put her on the board of directors in 2012. Well, I'll, let me just give kudos to you because this bleeds right into the pre to the previous story which is speaking of meta facebook twitter everything they were talking about linda yaccarino and cheryl sandberg the story from fox business is reports of instagram making twitter competitor prompts comment from linda yaccarino you've said you've been very critical of facebook where basically all they do is just copy what their competitors doing or buy their competitor and they just make something different or or, or improve upon it. And that's essentially what Instagram, they're like, holy shit, Elon's on to something. Linda Yaccarino, the new CEO, is on to something. 
We're just going to follow in their footsteps, which basically bleeds into the previous story. Cable news is dying. Everything's going on to digital media these days. Everything's going on to mm -hmm. YouTube, Facebook, Meta. It's like the writing's on the wall. And and Elon Musk is essentially leading the charge here. It, it's been there. And let me make a point about Facebook. I think that a lot of people, Facebook is seen as stodgy and old and irrelevant, whatever. So I'm, I've got about uh, closing around 500,000 followers on Facebook. I do videos on Facebook every single day. The ad revenue that you can make as an individual solo creator from Facebook videos, people have no idea. All right, people have no idea. And the reason that I'm so excited about Twitter as a creator, because if I could be making those Facebook numbers as myself, me personally wow. as a creator, if I can be making those numbers on Twitter, game on. Without risk. Without risk. Without risk. Without risking. Yes, that's a good point because there are certain things that I cannot say on Facebook. There are certain that's topics that I cannot go into on Facebook, but it, it's, it's a huge deal. Linda, Yacarino, Game On, everything we need to know about Instagram's Twitter clone due this summer. I love that This answer, is great. Just way. Game On. I love that Competition. answer. Competition. Yeah, I love that answer she gives right there. <clears throat> okay, so next uh, story we can go to. Da -da 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 -da. Let me see which story I want to go into here. Uh, let's do Tucker Carlson sends legal threat to PAC, urging him to run for president. It's kind of interesting move here by his lawyers. Um so uh, Tucker Carlson's lawyer, Harmeet Dillon, has issued a legal threat to the draft uh, Tucker PAC stating that Carlson will not run for president in 2024 under any circumstances. Dillon warned the group to seize its effort and vow to use legal means to protect Carlson's rights and supporters. The draft Tucker PAC released a video and ad urging Tucker to run for president, praising his, his ability to combat leftists in both parties parties and comparing him to the late Rush Limbaugh. Dylan responded on Twitter declaring that the PAC was unauthorized and criticizing Newsmax for airing the ad. She warned donors about being deceived and urged them not to contribute to the PAC. This PAC is unauthorized, fruitless to contribute, getting ripped off. They owe their viewers better than this. Rap. Look, it's a scam pack. And obviously, it's a scam pack. And, and Harmeet knows that Harmeet is a deeply, deeply intelligent woman. So she knows what's going on here. And what a lot of people don't understand about the political world is like, number one, it's full of grifters. Uh, and, and it's full of people that, that are running hustles and running grifts. And so you got a bunch of people, probably nobody knows who is behind this scam pack, but a bunch of people that had enough money to put together to, to you know, run ads on Newsmax. And they're basically saying, we're going to use Tucker's name and we're going to bring in all of this money. Nobody knows who these people are nobody knows where this money is going whatever it's a scam harmeet saw it tucker saw it and they're like they want to put an end to it and is this it, normal is, is this common does is, this happen oh my oh, god yes. are you kind of in the yeah. swamp okay. oh my goodness i'm but a, is this are they trying to is this a an organization that sincerely wants to help tucker run or no they're just trying to make some money i believe that these people are trying to make money and they're trying to use the Got biggest it. name in in our space probably one of the biggest names in america to do it this is what Sebastian yeah. Gorka was talking about yesterday with Correct. Trump and how basically the parasites just oh, basically yeah, latched exactly. onto him and just trying to siphon off money from Trump world. They mm -hmm. are political consultants, and if it's an even year, even numbered year, they make even more money. Yep. Ah, good and one, And they Tom. make money like whether or not their candidates win or lose. That's what people do not understand about the swamp. Like the pollsters. I don't have to be right. Yeah, they don't <laughs> no. have to be. I just have to be 
retained. Yeah. These people are scammers. They're grifters. The swamp is full of these people and they will take a big name and they will use that name to make money because the, the, and this is what I don't like about this entire situation is that they literally, they, they underestimate the intelligence of the audience of the MAGA base of whatever. And in their minds, in the minds of some of these scammers, the MAGA base is a bunch of rubes um, to be grifted. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, um, I can tell you there's a lot of people that would like to see the guy run, but I know that's not what he wants to do. He wants a different life. If yeah. he did, I think he's got a big following. I actually think he would bump into the number two spot really? overnight. I think he's that powerful of a guy and likable because remember, the key word is what? Winning. You win the people. You win your freedom. He's one people. He's won people. It's the hardest thing to do. Okay, next story. China-Taiwan tensions could grip 2024 elections as Musk, Buffett, and Dalio sounds alarm. This is a CNBC story. Influential business leaders such as Elon Musk, Buffett, and Dalio raising concerns about the escalating tensions between U.S. and China over Taiwan with implications for 2024 election. Musk emphasizes the inevitability of the situation and its adverse impact on global companies while Buffett has divested from Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing companies due to geopolitical concerns. Dalio warns of the risk of a warlike scenario between the two superpowers. The issue of Taiwan is becoming a focal point in the political landscape with Republican contenders like Ron DeSantis, Glenn Youngkin, and John Bolton highlighting the need to deter a potential Chinese invasion of the island, lawmakers are introducing legislation to counter China's growing influence. The 2024 election cycle is expected to bring increased anti-Chinese rhetoric and a focus on addressing China's actions. Tom. Well, what's really interesting is you've been listening to this podcast long enough. You knew that a year ago we called this. We said that what was going on in Taiwan was about global market share of chips and to influence chips and to put spyware on chips. That's what this is about. This is not about we want to right the wrong because we sent Chiang Kai-shek to the Isle of Formosa, later named Taiwan, and we want to get our property back. That is the political spin, and that's part of the spin that comes out of uh, the, the people's Republic of China government. If you take a look at this chart, we showed this before and it hasn't changed. This is the market share of advanced semiconductor manufacturing in the world. The world. Look at Taiwan and look at South Korea, Samsung. That is almost 80% of the world. And we've seen announcements coming up because people are waking up to this and realize it's not about China taking back Taiwan because it's their beloved island and homeland. They want the chips. And so when and China, you you saw that um, uh, we covered on the podcast about three weeks ago, right? Apple made an announcement they were making a deal with India yeah. to manufacture iPhones in India. Now Apple's announcing they want to make a deal with Broadcom to get chips. You also see that now uh, Buffett uh, divested himself of TSMC. There it is right there. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. Buffett was an investor in the largest chip maker in the world. He has pulled back. Why? It's real. Risk. It's full risk. That's what's going on here. And in the election year, this is a business story. This is a foreign policy story. And this is an inflation story because what's about to happen and you, you see uh, challenges that uh, U.S. companies were have getting permits to build uh, what's called a fab. It's a chip 
fab, when you hear that in the local news, that's a factory. So if you hear a chip fab's coming to down, that's good. That's usually a lot of jobs making chips here in the United States. But that's what's going on in Taiwan. Everybody has woken up to something that we were saying here on the podcast a year ago. And now you even see Apple, who's cozy with China, saying, yeah, I need manufacturing in India. I need chips made elsewhere because they're all starting to sweat. Mm-hmm. I'll just add to this, you know, part of the listeners or everyone that the shout out to the value tainers that, that uh, listen to what we talk about here. If there's one thing I've learned since being a part of the PBD podcast for three years is just can't understate the situation that's going on with China. Okay. So yesterday you did a poll, uh, you know, major concerns. What, what, what do you, what, what should uh, campaign uh, campaigns be about? You put Ukraine, you put Epstein. I believe that was the whole thing. You know, immigration, healthcare, everyone can give their top five. Here's what I will tell you, and I'll speak in very plain language. Whatever candidate puts China relations in a top five scenario, that is exactly where I'm going to be gravitating my vote toward because it does not get spoken about. I know Trump did China and everything that happened with that, but it's such an important situation that's going on in international relations with China. And, um, it's it can't be understated, but also international international national relations as well. But also just in the amount of massive influence that China has over our culture, uh, over our entertainment industry, over our business sector, all of that other stuff, and making you know, our medicine, making our medicine, all of these giving things. us I mean, COVID, yeah, the uh, the the fentanyl that's coming into this country from China, like all of that stuff, and even thinking about um, TikTok, right? And I'm I'm not necessarily in the banned TikTok thing, but you have to think about uh, what are these images that are being put through this platform and that are being disseminated to the youth of our country? Okay, um, divisive stuff. You got people dying in TikTok challenges, all of this other stuff. This is literally cultural and psychological warfare um, to the level to which we've never seen before. And nobody wants to talk about this stuff. Least of all, a lot of these um, these politicians who are in some way owned by China. I do believe personally, I don't know if I'm getting in trouble for saying this, I believe that that Biden is in some way compromised by China. Um, something on that laptop, like something that is going on, they've got something on this guy, okay? And if we don't have politicians that are that are willing to stand up, people that want to lead this country, people that want to lead America into the revival that this country needs, if they're not going to stand up to China, uh, if they're not going to stand up and start talking about this, I don't want to hear anything they have to say. So I'm with you on that. I've, I think a lot of people are there with you. Matter of fact, talking about Biden, Hillary Clinton says Biden's age is a legitimate issue. People have every right to consider it, is what she said during an interview. At the Financial Times Weekend Festival, Clinton addressed Biden's stumble at the G7 summit saying, every time that happens, your heart is in your mouth because these things could be consequential. Is that a concern? It's a concern for everyone. While other Democrats have dismissed age-related concerns, Clinton expresses her belief that Biden can be reelected, stating, I obviously hope he stays very focused and able to compete in the election because I think he can be reelected, and that's what we should all hope for. Then Joe Biden peddles his worst lie in front of U.S. Marines during Japan trip, which this is... This is just uncomfortable. It's awkward. It doesn't make any sense to make this kind of a blunder. During his trip in Japan, President Joe Biden falsely claimed, my son was a major in the U.S. Army. We lost him in Iraq, referring to his son Bo's death. However, Bo died of brain cancer. In America, Biden has repeatedly made this false statement to portray himself as a gold star parent 
and score political points. The president's erroneous remark occurred during an informal visit with troops at Marine Corps Air Station Awakuni. The traveling press corps was kept at a distance, and the White House did not release an official transcript, potentially allowing the error to go unnoticed by the public. The fabrication has been previously called out, including by the New York Times. Biden's false claim diminishes the sacrifices of those who died in combat and is seen as shameless and disrespectful, equating his son's death from cancer with the deaths of soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan is deeply problematic. It's Can we shameful? play the clip? Do you have the clip? Yes. Go for it. My son was a major U.S. Army. Lost him in Iraq. Why do you do that, though? That's that's just that's the. Uh, go ahead. It, shameful, infuriating. Yeah. I'm a veteran. You're a veteran as well. And look, what this speaks to is the fact that this is somebody that's obviously in mental decline. If you watch Joe Biden, if you watch his action, you see him stumbling up these steps, you see him tripping over the teleprompter, if you see him telling these outright lies, this is somebody that needs to be sitting down on in a rocking chair on, on a porch right now playing with his grandkids. This is not somebody that needs to be the leader of the free world. But here's the thing. He is given a pass on this over and over and over again because when he lies, who's going to point it out? Conservative media, the New York Post, et cetera, et cetera, um, and mainstream media is just going to pretend that this doesn't happen uh they're just going to you know just just sweep it under the rug um and i want to get back to to one thing about hillary clinton making the remark about biden's age and this is going to be an unpopular opinion i love hillary clinton i'm obsessed with her she is so evil she (laughs) is so unbelievably evil she is my favorite supervillain. she's like thanos in the avengers like this is why i love hillary clinton so much because she is just so fundamentally evil and what you have to understand about a supervillain that is as fundamentally evil as hillary clinton is that there is not a word that comes out of her mouth that does not have a political motive behind it she knew exactly what she was saying right there she knew that these remarks were going to go go viral and there is a point there is a reason behind her talking about Biden's mental decline um, and his cognitive decline and all of this other stuff. Does that mean that she's trying to get in? I don't put anything past Hillary Clinton at this point. Um, does this mean that they're trying to get somebody to run against Biden? Who knows? But the blood is in the water. Mm. Hillary Clinton, that villain, that that evil human being right there saying this, um, there's some political motivations. Behind no her. doubt that she has an agenda every time she speaks. Can we yes. play this clip? Rob? Yeah, it's like, is she running or is she still pissed at him? That's what I was thinking when ahead, I heard Rob. it. Can you raise the audio? Turn that up. They're whispering. He didn't use the railings. Jill wasn't there with him. It's really that low? Every time that happens, your heart is in your mouth because you these things could be consequential. Is that a concern? Well, I mean, it's a concern for anyone. Um, and we've had presidents who've fallen before who were a lot younger um, and people didn't go into you know, heart palpitations. Um, but he, his age is an issue, and people have every right to consider it. But, you know, he has this great saying, and, and you know, I think he's right. You know, he, you know, don't judge him by running against the almighty, but against the alternative. And I am, you know, of the camp that uh, I think, you know, he's determined to run. He has a good record that... Three years ago, people would not have predicted would have gotten done. 
Uh, he doesn't get the credit yet that he deserves that for what is happening out in the country. By the way, you know, but people people call a lot of people as the greatest poker players of all time. Is there a better poker player than her? She's she's got a two and a ten, and she'll look at you as if she's got pocket aces. Yeah. There's not a better person in the game than Hillary Clinton. She may be the greatest poker player of all time. Look, guys, this this is what I this <laughs> is what I skilled <laughs> oh, politician. She is a skilled politician. She is. This is what I tell my audience all the time. My problematic out there. I say this all the time. These people think that you are stupid. These people think that you're dumb. These people think that you do not know facts. These people think that you will believe everything that they tell you. So when Hillary Clinton sits on that stage and she talks about Biden having a good record, the expectation is that the people that are watching her are dumb enough to believe everything that she says. She, she by the way, I wonder if it's comedy. I wonder if she thinks people are dumb. And I wonder if people actually buy what she has to say. Next story here. Reparations fight roars as some cities push million-dollar payments to black Americans are civic obligation. And uh, so the battle of reparations intensifying in the United States. This is a Fox News story with discussions at the local, state, and federal levels considering million-dollar payments to black Americans. Representative Cori Bush and progressive lawmakers have introduced the reparations now resolution calling for $14 billion in reparations, citing a moral and legal obligation to address the impact of slavery on black lives. Reparations initiatives have emerged at the municipal and state levels with proposals for direct payments and assistance programs. The California Reparations Tax Force recommended $1.2 million payment to eligible black residents, while Evanston, Evanston, Illinois, Evanston, Illinois approved a plan to provide $25,000 for home repairs or down payments to qualified black residents. Critics argued that reparations should not be pursued and that they divert attention from addressing Critical issues in black communities. What are your thoughts on this? Look, it, it, there's a lot of thoughts. Number one, no greater than than Bayard Rustin, who is a, a legendary icon of the civil rights movement. He's one of the ones that, that co-founded, uh, that co-organized the March on Washington. And this is Bayard Rustin said this in the 60s. Uh, and he said that his father was not a slave, nor was his grandfather, something like that. So he, in, in his mind, um, reparations was a silly conversation that we need to move forward from that. And so, look, you have to understand that this is how the left, uh, this is what the left does. And this is what Democrats do when they're trying to appeal to black Americans. They have nothing substantial to offer black Americans in terms of policies. Uh, They know that their policies are actually detrimental to the lives of African-Americans. So what do they do? Every election year comes up. Here's the handout. Here's some reparations. Here's this. Here's that. Uh, I don't know how long people are going to fall for it. Look, when I came out as conservative five years ago and, you know, like you saw the vice video and all that stuff. And I was like, you know, right. Like, you know, black people like we got to wake up all that other stuff. Five years later, I do not know because they somehow continue to keep falling for this, right? And if they continue to keep falling for this stuff, uh, the Democrats are going to continue to keep pushing it. Uh, and, And one more point that I'll make about quote unquote reparations is that we have seen billions of dollars that the federal government has given um, in terms of of programs to help advance African-Americans, in terms of uh, welfare stuff, in terms of all of this other stuff. And what has that really done? All right. Like it hasn't really done a a whole hell of a lot um, to benefit, you know, lower income black communities across the country. And the issue that these communities face is, again, not a political issue. It is a cultural issue. 
I would the great Alan West. I was I was watching one of his videos from my Facebook page yesterday, and he made this. He 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 basically was was debating with this college leftist, and he basically said the fundamental problems in the African American community are not going to be solved by the government. They're going to be solved by the family structure. Why are there no men in the house? Where are the fam where where are the family structure? And the federal government has de incentivized fathers in the household. For the better part of the past 40, 50, 60 years, until you fix that, all of these problems are never going to get fixed. But Democrats don't want to fix the problem. They want to pretend that they fix the problems and they want to basically buy black votes. It pisses wanna, me off. You know what? I'm going to follow it up with some uh, some facts here. And also, we need to look no further than our vice president, who was a proponent of the California three strikes laws. But that, And it was three strikes and then you spend your life in prison. So if your third conviction, your life in prison. But... Drug distribution um, convictions counted as a full strike. So an 18-year-old um, individual sells two ounces of marijuana before it's legal. That's a strike. And it was Kamala Harris that pushed that in California, and it disproportionately, you know, um, imprisoned for those relatively minor drug distribution offenses. I'm not talking about fentanyl. I'm talking about I'm talking about pot. I'm talking about marijuana, grass, and she put an enormous amount of men of color in the California state prisons. Yeah, Kamala the cop. Kamala the that's a, you ever see those memes? It was like Kamala Harris and the the, the, the Kamala mm -hmm. the cop. Well, let me ask you. Um, I feel like you're a good person to ask about this. Um, I'm actually here representing all black people. Of course. Me. That's why I'm using you as, your, as your representative. That's, that's exactly why I'm asking this question. The, uh, I'll be over they're here. They're talking about $14 trillion in reparations. Okay. What's our GDP? $22 trillion. So we're talking almost two-thirds of our U.S. economy, GDP, going towards reparations. Yeah, and also, dummies, where is the money coming yeah, I don't, from? I, don't, I, like I, I want to go math here. I'm not trying to go, you know, identity politics. I'm not trying to call anybody names here. I want to understand, where is this money actually coming from? You it, see California the, the, in San Francisco, didn't Dodge just go there recently? They're talking about giving people $5 million checks how is this being funded? Fundamentally, it's they they want it to come from the tax dollars. And here's the thing: like if you we can we got our fucking debt ceiling, we can barely pay our own freaking bills. So the state can't do it. For thirty-one trillion dollars so, so in I, debt. So I, where is this money coming so from? Yeah. So I want you to understand. <laughs> I want you to understand. Just a small thinker over here, the, just trying the to come up with some trillions. I want you to understand the reasoning behind what they do it, and and how this also ties into sort of the anti-capitalism, anti-millionaire, billionaire rhetoric that they also try to push to leftists. Okay. So on one hand, they're going to say, uh, you are entitled to reparations because you're so black and you're so oppressed and the legacy of slavery and the trauma and all of that other stuff. And you're entitled to this money. You are not meant to think where the money is supposed to come from. OK, it's obviously going to come from from taxpayer dollars. It's obviously going to come from the federal government. Right. But if you have a group of people that are so anti-capitalist, anti-millionaire, anti-billionaire, whatever, they're never really good. They're not thinking about tax. Mm -hmm. My ex-best friend was a total Bernie Sanders leftist. He was perfectly thrilled to just take taxpayer money. These are not the people that are going to be paying for that stuff, right? And so 
fundamentally, if you get these people to hate capitalism, hate millionaires, hate billionaires, and then say there's all this free money that's going to be coming to you because you're such a victim and vote for us and we'll do it, of course it's going to be tax dollars. But they're not thinking about the yeah. fact that this is literally their own money that they're going to be getting back. I think they have to be very careful with this because do you know, uh, uh, you know, when you, when you look at numbers like this, do you know who the first uh, slave owner was in America? Do you know the first ever slave owner in America? <laughs> Do you actually know this? It was I a black not. man. It was a black man. Wow. It was Anthony Johnson. Okay. If you just type in first, Anthony Johnson uh, was the first slave owner in America. So this is kind of a, you know, when you, when you go through the stats and you go through stories and you go through what happened and you go through the moment with Don Lemon that he brought that one lady on and he's asking about what do you think about reparations? Yeah, we should go back to the Africans who were the original... You know, the, slave the owners. The like, oh, yeah, we really need to yeah, look into yeah, this. Yeah. You know, we really need to look into <laughs> this. You know, when you do things like this, uh, it, it's it's a travesty what happened to slavery. Listen, man, I'm Armenian. Armenian genocide. I'm half Assyrian. Assyrian genocide. Greeks, what the Turks did to them. It's 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 catastrophic. It's mm -hmm. it's terrible what happened to those folks. Terrible what happened to the Holocaust. Holocaust. Yes, so yes. slim. Nobody's sitting here saying any of that stuff, but uh, I think the the way this is going about is another thing to run for election, and I think it may get a lot of people's attention to say, can we win some more African-American votes? But what you pointed out earlier is the gay vote, you were saying, 70%, 30% voted for Trump in 2016 or 2020? Was it was, uh, it, I think those numbers came out in uh, 2020. 2020. Yeah. When, you th when you think about that, and then the African-American vote, for the longest time, Democrats have had... 92 percent of the yeah. votes since 1964 and it's gone to 88 percent so it's kind of going in a different direction yeah. to say like i don't know what uh, uh, the democrats have done for me nothing's really changing my life when i look back you just make my the top 20 30 cities in crime in america 27 are, written, are, are driven by democrats so this naacp is sitting there saying hey you know you should not go to florida great that's great. Why don't you talk? So you want people to go to the top 27, uh, yeah. 30 cities where 27 are Democrats and they're not safe? They can say these things, but the opposition argument is going to be very easy to come back to this. I want to go to this other story. Rob, can you pull up the story of what happened in Iran? Okay. This is, this is going to sound like it's out of a movie. It's not. This is not out of a movie. I'll send a link to you on what just happened in Iran. And if you read this, you're, you're almost going to say, yeah, I, I don't know if this is true. Iran has hanged three people on drug charges amid continuous, continued criticism of its execution practices and increased death penalty sentences. The three men identified as Shahab, Mansour, Nasab, Samad, Jervand, and Saeed, Jervand were hanged after more than... 39 kilograms of heroin. They're saying that's what the reason was. And precursors and processing equipment were confiscated with them. Judiciary uh, website said on uh, Sunday. Now, that's the story you're reading. I'll give you another story for you to read, Rob. Is this one I'm about to send to you? These guys that just went through this, they were anti-government protest. They were not supporting what they're doing in Iran today. And they spoke out about it. Okay, if you can pull up the link I just sent you. And Iran sits there and says, yeah, this is kind of, we got to make a statement too. So Iran executes three men accused over anti-government protests. 
Iran has executed three men and said it was implicit uh, in their deaths of three members of security forces during anti-government protests, drawn condemnation from rights groups and the EU, and risking further international isolation. Uh, uh, so that story you pulled up was a different story than this one here, Rob. These are two different stories. Saleh Mirashemi, Majid Khalsemi, Zaid Yakobi were killed on Friday morning. The Tasnim agency reported crowds had gathered outside the prison where they were being held on Thursday night as rumors of their imminent execution grew. Cultural figures inside and outside Iran, as well as family members, had steeped, had stepped up a campaign over the past weekend to halt the executions on the grounds that Iranian authorities had failed to produce definitive evidence of the men responsibly for the deaths of two members of Basij Parliamentary Force and law enforcement officers on 16 November. So it goes and goes telling these different stories. Go on Twitter now to see what's trending right now. Go on Twitter to see what's trending right now. Go to Twitter and see on the right what's trending. King, uh, if you go to more of them to show, one of them should be King Reza Pahlavi is trending 16,000, 17,000. On my screen, it shows as number three. Uh, uh, if you type in King Reza Pahlavi, you may have a hard time spelling that. Here's what's going on uh, uh, with Iran. When events like this happen, Iran just a year ago, they had so much momentum, so much momentum with what was going on. You're seeing Reza Pahlavi, the son of King Reza Pahlavi, the gentleman right there. He and I have had multiple meetings together, had multiple conversations together. People in Iran are starting to worry about what's going to happen, and he is all over the place right now, uh, talking about the fact that this is an opportunity for Iran to be free. We can live in a country like America for people that complain about America. When's the last time you went outside and you said, you know what, they're hanging three different people today outside of D.C.? Yeah, you know what happened? These guys talked against the president. And they're hanging up. What? You're serious? That, that would never happen. Just out of movies. No, that actually just happened in Iran. That, 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 those types of things are still happening in countries like Iran. And, uh, I, I, you know, it's such a weird position for them to be in because on one end, parents want to see Iran be free again. But the fear of getting their kids to be motivated by this and they go out there and all of a sudden like, man, I lost my son. The parent, parent doesn't want to ex- experience risking something like that. Um, so you can encourage them and say, look, keep fighting. It's like, you're not even in here to know how ugly it is. What do you mean keep fighting? It is a decision they need to be making. But one of my uh, dreams is to one day take my kids to Iran, to Khyabana Hojat, and show them where their father was raised. And I lived there 10 years and how the history of this empire, that they went from being where they were at to the king building Iran into a place where women finally had a voice. But it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I like seeing him all over the place. Uh, the son talking about this. There's more and more momentum going on there. But this was a tragic event that just took place in Iran this week. And this is amazing perspective. Something that um, that really um, clicked for me is when you shared the story of when you first came to America and your mom was watching just regular news and the commentator was saying something negative about our president. And what, what was her reaction? She says, poor guy, they're going to kill him tomorrow. Because that's normal in Iran. You don't talk against, uh, uh, you know, presidents. That's just not something you do in Iran. You don't do that. In America, it's normal. In America, it's a business model. Like, we're doing it today. (laughs) Last two hours. This is what we've been doing today. I'd be be homeless otherwise. You wouldn't be homeless, maybe five of us outside today. So it's like, hey, Rob's going to say, look, I'm just working here, man. I wasn't doing anything. I'm just having my drink and enjoying it. But it'd be me, Adam, Rob, and Tom uh, outside of ITM and a statement being made. Talk about us one more time. That would be the case in Iran. Okay. So I'll wrap up with the story from Wall Street Journal, get a couple commentary and wrap this up. Uh, uh, Does God exist? Only half of Americans say 
a definite yes. This is a story on page 18 if you want to go to it. So only 50% of Americans are certain about the existence of God. According to the General Social Survey, this marks a decline from, a, from 60%, over 60% in 2008, indicating a shift in religious beliefs. The survey also reveals that 34% of Americans never attend church, the highest figure recorded in five decades. Additionally, the number of Americans claiming no religion has increased from 27% in 2022, up from 19% in 2012, while religious affiliation and church attendance continue to decline. Belief in some form of higher power remains uh, prevalent. Nearly three-quarters of Americans believe in life after death, and only 7% of the population identifies as atheists. Despite these trends, the United States remains relatively religious compared to other countries. So now, here's so so wild about this. Uh, half of America, more than half of America, believe the Russia collusion was a real deal. So, so they're, they're willing to believe a fake narrative like that for three years, and then Durham comes out and points it out, but they have a hard time believing in God. But I have to see it, because I have to see it to believe that there's a God. Dude, you never saw anything about Russia, but you leave, believed in Russia collusion. What do you mean you have to see it? No, but that, you know, there was a little bit of Russian stuff going on. No, there was nothing going on. It was just something that you believed in. So the second concern here is the following. You know, you know who historically governments and establishments always feared? Who they've feared? They've always feared men and women who believed in a higher power above the government, above the establishment. The establishment doesn't like that because the establishment secretly, their desire is to be God. Mm -hmm. Their dream is to be God. Their dream is to be feared. Their dream is they're jealous. They, you know, it says God is jealous. You know, the establishment is way more jealous than God is. They want all the attention. They want all the control. They want all the limelight. The difference between a, you know, relationship with a God where it's, you know, free will, you and I get to make some dumb choices, and we do on a daily basis, and we go through that, and we pay the price for it. The establishment doesn't want to give you the free will. The establishment wants you to do what they want you to do. They want to control you. So, you know, for me, there's a part of this that for some people that are listening to this, everybody uh, falls into one of three categories. You're either part of the oblivious camp, which is a big percentage, let's say 80%, is the oblivious camp. What is the oblivious camp? Man, I don't have time to pay. I don't really have an influence. You think my vote really counts? I don't really. I just want to have my beer and watch a football game. And you know what? I don't even know what's going on with Bud Light. I'll go to Coors and Heineken. I, I don't know what's going on. The oblivious crowd. Okay. Number two is the anti-establishment crowd. The anti-establishment crowd, historically, who is in that camp? Let's give some names. Andrew Jackson, anti-establishment crowd. Uh, John F. Kennedy, the Kennedys, anti-establishment crowd. Ronald Reagan, anti-establishment crowd. Ross Perot, anti-establishment crowd. Trump, anti-establishment crowd. Bernie Sanders, anti-establishment crowd until he caved. Elon Musk, anti-establishment crowd. I can go on and on, give you so many different names. Ronald Reagan, uh, out of all the money that was spent in his campaign, he spent 9.6% of his own money to put into it. Trump was 72%. Ross Perot was 97%. Didn't take any money from anybody. When Kennedy was running, his father said, I will use 100% of my life savings to make sure my son ends up becoming a president. He only ended up using 50% of the entire campaign. I think it was like $25 bucks at a time where uh, Joseph Kennedy was working. $400 million in the 60s. So you look at some of these things, and you look at Hillary Clinton. You know how much money she spent on her campaign? Zero of her own money. You know how much Biden spent on the campaign? Nothing. They don't go and use their own money. They use money from other people. They're the establishment. They're controlled. You have to know the direction of faith. You may say, Pat, what does this have to do with God? This is what it has to do with God. Um, 
I'm, I'm a pretty paranoid guy. I'm a skeptical guy. This is what happens when you're Middle Eastern. You, you, you're, you naturally have a hard time for the establishment. You naturally have a hard time with faith, church. I was an atheist for 25 years of my life because I saw stuff in church and I didn't like it. And I saw stuff on the government. I didn't like it. I saw the gamesmanship, all this other stuff. Here's what I will tell you. Um, the more your family and your kids don't believe in a higher power, they will replace that with another higher power. And that higher power is you when you're alive, but when you die, that higher power could end up being the government when you're dead. I would much rather have my kids make the mistake of believing there's a God, and when they die, they realize there isn't, than risk my kids not believing there's a God, and they make the government being the God, and then risk being controlled, and we die, we're like, shoot, there was a God. The risk is better having faith in your life because you don't fear powerful men. Men of faith don't fear the establishment. Men of faith don't fear dying because they believe there's afterlife. Men of faith speak in a complete different way than men of the establishment. If there's ever been a time, ever, I told you last night, what did I tell you last night at 10 o'clock at night? What did I say to you last night? I, I said, said a lot. But, but a the, lot the of, church part, what did I say to you? Go to temple, go to go church. Go to temple. Yeah. I'm not even a Jew. I said, go to the, go to the temple. You're Mormon, you're not going to church, go to your church. You're Catholic, you're not going to go. You're Christian, you're not going to go. You're Muslim. I don't care what it is. I will much rather have a person believe in a faith. This is not a faith debate. We need more people believing in God. This great nation of America, the miracle that it ended up becoming where so many of us have won and gotten the rewards of these men and women who sacrificed that came before us. These men and women casted a vision that the only thing that gave them the credit that this is possible, that it can actually happen, was God. And then we wake up a 270-year-old company called the United States of America. By the way, for the longest time, it was a corporation. America was founded as a, a federal corporation as well, United States of America. You can look this up. This, this idea with these men and women that became what it is today, um, and other countries that have been around a lot longer than, I, than we have, than we beat those guys? Yeah, I don't think that happens without God. So uh, uh, if, if you believed in Russia collusion for three years, you can definitely start believing in God. You don't have to have all the facts mm -hmm. to want to believe in God. Your life's going to be a lot better. You're going to become a better parent, better leader, better spouse, better friend, better in every possible way. Anyways, Tom, thoughts on this story here with uh, Wall Street Journal. No, I think and, and by the way, this is not a... Uh, this is not a this is a Hill story we're talking about here, right? This is a Hill story. So what are your thoughts on this story? Well, I, I think America is still a place of faith. When you compare all those stats to the rest of the world, America is still a, uh, a place of faith. And I think that if all of us would turn to our faith tradition, I think we would be treating each other better. I would think that we would be calling on our the people we elect for higher standards of integrity, or hell, just to have a standard of integrity. And I, I can't agree with you any more stridently with what you just said and how you summed it up, that this is the time to lead your family, to lead your friends, to um, lead your community, and standards of faith, integrity, and character are found in, are found in faith in, in big stacks. Because faith can drive character, character drives people, people then come together and form organizations called businesses, civic groups, friendships, communities. Mm. Final thoughts, guys, before we wrap up here. 
Rob, it was great having you on the podcast here today. Gang, we're going to put the website again here, stopwoke.com, stopwoke.com. Go to it. Uh, we'll put the link in description chat, uh, uh, comment section for you to go to it again, stopwoke.com. You can also follow Rob, all his uh, social media platform uh, links will be below. You can find him at Rob Smith. Is it online? Rob Smith online. Rob Smith online. Is it the same as well on Instagram? It's the same everywhere. Same everywhere. Uniform. Perfect. Rob Smith online. Uh, oh, I'm on a trip right now. I got to go to New York. But you got what? You got a podcast here this week? I've got a podcast tomorrow. And then next Friday is the live event with Fresh and Fifth. That's right. Next Friday is a live event with Fresh and Fifth here, I think, June 2nd, if I'm June not mistaken. June 2nd. Get your tickets Thursday now. night or Friday night? Friday night. Uh, Ladies, party, the craziness, the arguments, fights. All that. If you like above. that kind of stuff, you don't want to miss like this. Go to 5990live.com. I love it. Tom? And uh, Monday is Memorial Day. We'll be enjoying a little bit of a picnic. And so I believe it will be Tuesday afternoon that the BizDoc podcast You're doing a picnic? Back. Like like literally an old school no, picnic. I, no, I think I think he just took me visually to a place sitting in the grass with a picnic and you're making ant, sandwiches, stuff like that. And ants. Yeah. And Tom, yeah, I've got one wish for you on Memorial Day, and it's exactly what Pat said. I want you to this weekend, I want you to be with your family and I want you to get your freak on. That's right. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Rob, when's our next podcast? I don't even know what our next podcast uh, is. We'll be back next Tuesday. We'll be back next Tuesday. Yes, Fantastic. Tuesday Have a great morning. weekend, everybody. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.